Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So really big news. We had thought that the Democrats had one chance for sure at passing a major piece of legislation through this process called budget reconciliation, which means that it is not subject to a filibuster. It cannot be blocked by the Republican minority in the Senate. We thought that they had one chance at that and that they used that one chance or one chance for sure that they used that one chance with the COVID relief package, the bill that you know, provided us with the checks and extended unemployment insurance and expanded health care. I mean, just did a lot of really great stuff. And there might have been a second opportunity to use reconciliation because in 2020, you're supposed to be able to do it once a year. And in 2020, Congress never did it. And so apparently, you know, the Republicans were in charge back then and they got their tax cut out of Trump in 2017. And then basically they just, you know, What do you do when you paid $174,000 a year to govern, but you have no interest in governing and you don't believe in government? You know, Matt Gates. you get drunk, you take drugs, you have sex, you you play golf one out of three days when you're president. Uh, By the way, at this point in time, four years ago, we had spent over a million dollars on presidential golf trips, almost all of it going to Trump properties. We had not spent one penny for presidential golf trips at this point in time in the Obama presidency or the George W. Bush presidency, and we have not spent one penny on a presidential golf trip in the Biden presidency. Uh, it's kind of nice. Things, things are getting better, it seems. But anyhow, we thought we had this one chance, and maybe we had two chances if we could grab last year's reconciliation and say, we're going to do that this year. Maybe even backdate it. But Chuck Schumer, he's, he's turning out to be a wily old fox. He, he went to the Senate parliamentarian and said, okay, we passed this piece of legislation by reconciliation. Can we amend it now? Can we simply take the, the COVID relief package, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, and put a 2 or $3 trillion amendment on it for you know, roads and bridges and infrastructure and broadband and everything else. As long as everything in that amendment also meets the criteria for for reconciliation. In other words, it has to have something to do with the budget. It has to have something to do with either raising taxes or spending money. And certainly infrastructure is all about both. And the Senate parliamentarian, much to everyone's shock, said, sure, you can do that. And so now the debate is, what do we do? 
I mean, we've got a, a, a between two and three trillion dollar package right now that has you know, that the details of which have been laid out by people like uh, Secretary Buttigieg and Vice President Harris. You've got progressives and 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 many other Democrats who don't even identify themselves as progressives saying, you know, we could do bigger. We could do bigger than this because we're talking about two trillion dollars over a 10 year period. That's like two hundred million dollars a year. Right. If I'm doing my math right. And that's not a hell of a lot of money. If you want to see something really happen and then and then the question, of course, becomes also how do you pay for it? And Biden had, or the Biden administration had initially proposed raising the corporate tax rate, which used to be up at 35%. And that's the top, by by the way, that's the top tax rate. It doesn't mean that every corporation gets taxed, right? 50 of the 100, 55 of the 100 largest corporations in America have paid no income taxes in the last three years. To get taxed, number one, you have to show a profit. Now, all of those corporations were very, very profitable. And number two, you can't have moved any of that money into some foreign country or shoved it into some kind of loophole category, which they all did. So you know, now you've got Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, suggesting that we should have a worldwide tax on income because so many of these large American companies don't just do business in America. I wanted to, uh, to send a gift to a friend of mine who lives in Germany, I logged on to Amazon.de with my regular Amazon credentials. And, you know, I can read enough German on the screen to be able to buy the product and get it sent right to their family in Germany from the German Amazon website. Okay, it's a multinational corporation. But it's based here. It started here. And, well, at the very least, the business it does here should be subject, the profits on the business it does here should be subject to corporate income tax. But then Joe Manchin comes along and says, oh, you know, I don't, we can't, you know, it's maybe 25%. I'd take 25%. Keep in mind, it used to be 35%. Trump dropped it down to 21%. And kind of more or less averaged around 28% over recent years. And so Joe Manchin is like, yeah, 25%. And David Sirota today in his, in his uh, Daily Poster, I think is the name of his newsletter, said, uh, you can track this right to Joe Manchin's major contributors who are in the whole private equity, you know, fiddling with money hedge fund space because they're all taking advantage of this particular loophole in Trump's tax bill. Many of them have even changed their form of corporation." just so that they could take advantage of that tax loophole. And if you take, get rid of that tax loophole, they're going to have to spend some money to reinvent themselves all over again. And who wants to do that? So Manchin's trying to blow this up. And, this, and, he, and he says he's got five or six colleagues in the Senate, five or six other Democratic senators who are also taking big money from, from hedge funds and private equity groups. So that debate is going to happen. But what got real interesting is that that debate now does not have to involve Republicans. Up until, you know, I mean, this, this was the, the, the critical error in governing that both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama made. Presidents Clinton and Obama both believed, I, I think believed deep down inside, that for their ideas and, and legislation to have legitimacy, they had to have bipartisanship. They had to have Republicans sign off on it. And so Obama, for example, made all kinds of of tweaks and changes to Obamacare, to his signature product, because Republicans said that was what was necessary to get their votes. They told him, you got to do this and this and that, and then maybe we'll go along with it. And so he did this and this and this. And how many Republican votes did he get? Zero. Bill Clinton had the same problem. So, so the Biden administration has come along and said, yeah, we're all, we're all in favor of bipartisanship. We don't want anything. We don't want to do anything in the United States that, you know, doesn't have the support of some Republicans. But they don't have to be in Congress. We'll look at the opinion polls. You know, 80, 90 percent of Americans want our infrastructure rebuilt, and that includes a majority of Republicans. So if the Republicans in Congress say, no, screw them, we can do this without them. It's still bipartisan. So Democrats are now negotiating with themselves rather than with, with, with Republicans, which is like, you know, 
Praise the Lord, hallelujah, and Baruch Hashem. I mean, it's just like, it's like, finally they figured it out. Republicans have been doing this since the, since the 80s, since the Reagan administration, saying, oh yeah, we'll pass legislation without a single Democratic vote. We don't care. From, you know, some of Reagan's tax cuts and some of his most egregious policies all the way up to, to uh, Trump's tax cut. So I think it's a, a new day. Um, some other things I want to share with you, children and the uh, new B117 variant. This is huge news. What the right wing is saying about masks, how they're trying to kill more Americans. I'll share that with you. And uh, Joe Biden just made a major announcement about April 19th. I'll tell you about that on the other side of the break, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's mixed news, but broadly trending toward good news. I'll share all these details right after the break. One hundred and fifty million Americans have been vaccinated. First dose. So the Biden administration has come along and said, yeah, he's on goal to hit two hundred million. Keep in mind, there's three hundred and forty million of us, two hundred million vaccinated by the end of his first hundred days in office. This is not fully vaccinated. It takes a second vaccine. And keep in mind also that, you know, Donald Trump bought 100 million doses of Pfizer, as I recall, or no, of Moderna vaccine, because there was all this, this stuff going around about how he had he owned stock in Moderna. And then when he had an opportunity to buy another 100 million doses, he was like, no, we're good. And so Biden had to scramble to get this stuff. It was amazing on the weekend how Jake Tapper, for example, on Sunday was like just twisting himself in a pretzel to try to Give some credit to President Trump for Operation Warp Speed that did nothing but basically write a check for 100 million doses of vaccine. And that was it. I mean, you know, the Pfizer vaccine was developed in Germany by a couple of Turkish immigrants, um, a husband and wife team. So it's like so Biden inherited a real disaster, a mess, an absolute hot mess. And as of April 19th, all Americans should be eligible for the coronavirus. April 19th is like, you know, a week, a little less than two weeks away. We have 77, the new Gallup poll, 77% of Americans say the, uh, the COVID situation is improving. 64% say that it has caused a, a fair amount of disruption in their lives. And it used to be 49% of Americans were worried about catching COVID. Now that's down to 35%. And that, that's kind of good news and bad news. It's good news because more and more people are getting vaccinated. I'm seeing more and more people, you know, Louise and I walk for a couple of kilometers every day, about two miles. And we've been seeing more and more people in their 60s, 70s and older who are out taking a walk and not wearing masks anymore. And these are people who I used to think were mask holes, although typically those were younger people. And now we're seeing older people like venturing out. And I'm guessing it's probably 95% of them are, you know, have had their second vaccine and they're now feeling invincible. So, you know, step by step. But then we get Dr. Michael Olsterholm, who is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And he's also a member of Joe Biden's COVID-19 Task Force Advisory Board. Excuse me. And uh, on Meet the Press over the weekend, he was interviewed on NBC's program. And he said, please understand this B117 variant is a brand new ballgame. Now, uh, the B117 is the fancy science name for the what we call the British variant. It is burning through Europe right now. France is in lockdown. Italy just went into lo- not lockdown. Germany is debating it. Large parts of Germany are in lockdown because it's done more on a state-by-state basis there. And it's what's burning through Michigan right now and Massachusetts. You know, it's like, what is it? And Minnesota. What is it with states that start with an M? In Minnesota, Osterholm said more than 740 schools reported cases of the variant. And here's why this is uh, consequential. Down in Florida's Orange County, for example, one third of that county's COVID hospitalizations are people younger than 45. One third. And there's an explosion in people in the 18 to 25 age group in Florida right now with COVID. It's this new variant. 
as he said, he said, this is a new ballgame, quote, because it infects kids very readily. Unlike previous strains of the virus, where we didn't see children under eighth grade getting infected, now we are. And they're transmitting it to the rest of the community. He says, anywhere you look where you see this emerging, you see that kids are playing a huge role in the transmission of this. All the things that we had planned for kids in schools with this virus are really no longer applicable. We've got to take a whole new look at this issue. And I sure hope that the Biden administration is taking this seriously because I'm still hearing all this talk about, oh, it's time to open schools. And, and of course, on the right, it, it even goes beyond that. This uh, uh, from uh, Dennis Prager yesterday on Town Hall. When I see people walking outside, often alone, wearing a mask, my primary reactions are disappointment and sadness. I never thought most Americans would be governed by irrational fears and unquestioning obedience to authority. Over at the American Thinker, uh, they write, Is the mask a means to equalize the West? Liberal activists like Fauci, including those ensconced in the White House, appear to be drunk with power and deliberately moving toward the Chinese social control system that Barack Obama set into motion. Right. Let's all be afraid. Let's be very afraid. of Wearing masks, it's a sign that we've become Chinese communists. In the midst of this B-117 now having established a serious foothold in, at the very least that we know of, in a big way that's showing up epidemiologically in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Massachusetts, and in Florida, and soon to come to a town near you. Now, the B-117 is still vulnerable to this vaccine, so we're in a race here between this new variant that's highly contagious and infects children. And, allow, and they can transmit it to other people around them, including other children, between that virus and the vaccine. And what's standing in the way? Well, in part, you've got a bunch of anti-vaxxers and, you know, right-wing pastors and churches and things. Todd Harbin here with you and uh, Anna in Los Angeles. Hey, Anna, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. To your point of evangelism is the route to sway people from getting the vax and thus costing lives. My point in calling, and I do respect your opinion, is that the Nuremberg Code was signed to ensure the fundamental right of formed consent. And whether you have the right to choose your jab and I have the right to not doesn't make me a right-wing Confederate flag person. The big pharma went to the Congress in the 80s to say, hey, we're getting sued too much. It's breaking our piggy bank. So they have no liability. The taxpayers pay for their research. They get to receive. All I understand. The I understand all that, Anna, and we've discussed that before on this program. None of that speaks to the issue of we have. We are engaged in a massive science experiment here. We've got a virus that the human race, in the three hundred thousand years we've been on this planet, has never before encountered. That that experimental virus, as it were, is ripping through our population. We've got a vac- and it's killed a half a million Americans and several million people around the planet, and it has sickened and disabled tens of millions of Americans. And we now have a vaccine that we know has a very, at least with about a three or four month event horizon. You know, and, and again, I'll, I'll give this to you. You know, with Jerry Ford with his swine flu vaccine, we, it wasn't until six months or a year later that we discovered Guillain Barr, I think it's called syndrome, but it was very, very rare. But that was against the flu, which was not killing people like this thing kills people. So we've got a vaccine that is working. I'm not even going to say seems to work. The, the science is solid on this, Anna. I don't understand how you would refuse to take the vaccine, particularly out of some ideology that has to do with the Nuremberg trials? Because I have the right to informed consent and there's not enough information or long-term studies that says that myself or my children are not going to have long-term effects. People have died. 
guarantee. Well, I can tell you right now that getting the effect. getting the virus is going to have a long term effect. Don't your children have the right not to be disabled by this virus? Don't your friends and neighbors and relatives have the right not to be disabled by you because you're just engaging in this thought experiment? I mean, it's amazing. And again, you're the one that has the microphone, and I respect that. But we're not. We're going to see in ten months whether there's side effects on our next generation. We don't know what gene therapy is going to do to our. This is genes. not gene therapy, Anna. This is not altering your genes. There, you you, you've been, you've been listening website, to BS on the internet. No, you can yes, you can find websites that'll tell you that the world is flat. You can find websites that will tell you that Bill Clinton is a lizard person and and zips on his human suit every day. And you can find sites that'll tell you that, that um, mRNA vaccines not, are gene therapy. They're not. This is not do, gene therapy. This is um, this is a vaccine that is producing antibodies in your body to this to protein specific to this virus that's all it is tom the manufacturers say this is not this is up to 50 percent of lessening your symptoms it's not going to stop you from catching no i'm sorry anna i'm going to stop you right now because this is such a tragedy when people who you know clearly have a functioning intellect get sucked into these conspiracy theories. And I can tell you, some of this stuff is being pushed in America, particularly in social media, like on Facebook, by foreign countries that want to see the United States crash and burn. And then you've got, you know, crazies and zealots and conspiracy nuts and everything else. And, and, and you know, some decent people get sucked up into this. And it's just, it's just so, so very sad. It's so very unfortunate. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book today is Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance by Ian Golden and Chris Kutarna. The paperback edition is now out. This is from Chapter 1, titled To Flounder or Flourish. If Michelangelo were reborn right now amidst all the turmoil that marks this shocking moment we're in, would he flounder or flourish again? Every year, millions of people file into the Sistine Chapel to stare up and wonder at Michelangelo Bunarati's creation of Adam. Millions more pay homage to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Through five centuries, we have carefully preserved such Renaissance masterpieces and cherished them as objects of beauty and inspiration. But they also challenge us. The artists who crafted these feats of genius 500 years ago did not inhabit some magical age of universal beauty, but rather a tumultuous moment marked by historic milestones and discoveries, yes, but also wrenching upheaval. Their world was tangling together in a way that it had never done before, thanks to Gutenberg's recent invention of the printing press, 1450s, Columbus's discovery of the New World, 1492, and Vasco de Gama's discovery of a sea route to Asia's riches, 1497. And humanity's fortunes were changing in some ways radically. The Black Death had tapered off, Europe's population was recovering, and public health, wealth, and education were all rising. Genius flourished under these conditions, as evidenced by artistic achievements, especially from the 1490s to the 1520s, by Copernicus's revolutionary theories of a sun-centered cosmos, 1510, 
and by similar advances in a wide range of fields from biology to engineering to navigation to medicine. Basic common sense truths that had stood unquestioned for centuries, even millennia, were eroding away. The earth did not stand still. The sun did not revolve around it. The known world wasn't even half of the whole. The human heart wasn't the soul. It was a pump. In mere decades, printing boosted the production of books from hundreds to millions per year. And these weird facts and new ideas traveled farther and faster than had ever been possible. But risk flourished, too. Terrifying new diseases spread like wildfire on both sides of the now-connected Atlantic. The Ottoman Turks, backed by the new weapon of gunpowder, conquered the eastern Mediterranean for Islam in a stunning series of land and naval victories that cast a threatening gloom over all of Europe. Martin Luther, 1483-1546, leveraged Gutenberg's press to broadcast a new narrative that society's hallowed institutions served only to fatten their own hierarchies. It spread faster than compliant elites could fathom. Europe broke into Protestant and Catholic halves. War and refugee crises ignited continent-wide. Meanwhile, the populist priest Girolamo Savonarola, 1452-1498, ignited a real fire, the bonfire of the vanities in Florence, the very heart of Renaissance Europe. With apocalyptic sermons, Savonarola stoked people's worst reactions to rapid change. He promised Florentines a return to past glories if only they would join him in his campaign to burn away weak elites and their corrupt agendas. Enough did so that he was able to lord over the republic as a de facto king until four years later his political enemies literally crucified him. Such was the age in which on 8 September 1504 in Florence, Italy, Michelangelo unveiled his statue of David in the city's main square. Standing over five meters tall, weighing in at over six tons of fine Carrara marble, David was an instant monument to the city's wealth and to that sculptor's skill. David and Goliath was a familiar Old Testament story about a brave young warrior who, in true underdog fashion, improbably defeated a giant foe in a single combat. But with hammer and chisel, Michelangelo fixed into stone a monument no one had seen before. It must have caused some confusion for those present at the unveiling. David's face and neck were tense. His brow was furrowed and his eyes focused determinedly upon some distant point. He stood not triumphant atop the corpse of his enemy, the standard portrayal, but ready with the implacable resolve of one who knows his next step but not its outcome. And then they saw the artist's meaning clearly. Michelangelo carved David in that fateful moment between decision and action, between realizing what he must do and summoning the courage to do it. They knew that moment. They were in it. We are in it, too. The present age is a contest between the good and bad consequences of global entanglement and human development, between forces of inclusion and exclusion, between flourishing genius and flourishing risks. Whether we each flourish or flounder, and whether the 21st century goes down in the history books as one of humanity's best or worst, depends on what we all do to promote the possibilities and dampen the dangers that this contest brings. The stakes could not be higher. We each have the perilous fortune to have been born into an historic moment, a decisive moment, when events and choices in our own lifetime will dictate the circumstances of many, many lifetimes to come. Yes, it is the conceit of each generation to think so, but this time it's true. The long-term facts speak more loudly than our egos ever could. Age of Discovery. Fascinating book. Welcome back. On the line with us is Debbie Hines, trial lawyer, legal political commentator, former prosecutor, uh, former assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland. I am Debbie Hines, D-E-B-B-I-E-H-I-N-E-S dot com is her website. And I am Debbie Hines is also her Twitter handle. Hey, Debbie, uh, what happened today in the Chauvin trial that we need to know about? So here we're now getting down to the nuts and bolts of everything. We are no longer really having fact witnesses, but we're having what we as lawyers know as expert witnesses. So Jody, I have to look at his name, Steiger testified, and he testifies as an expert on unreasonable force or what is acceptable force. And, you know, some people may be confused and thinking, well, why do we, didn't we have all of these other police officers from the Minneapolis Police Department testify about that? But this 
this individual, he is really considered an expert. He's from the L.A. Police Department formerly. And what he says is when he's looking at everything, everything that all the rest of us have seen with Mr. Floyd prone on the ground, handcuffed behind his back, knee on his neck by uh, Derek Chauvin, that that was extremely unreasonable use of force, that there was no crowd interference, because, of course, that's what the defense has brought up. You know, what about the crowd? Did that in any way um, affect the officer's judgment? He says, no, because this crowd was a friendly crowd. They were trying to get help from Mr. Floyd. They were not trying to harm Mr. Floyd. And he did talk about the earlier incident when the police are getting ready to put Mr. Floyd in the police vehicle. And he said at that point, yes, George Floyd is resisting arrest and that they did have the right at that point to use the taser. But going back to the incident that is the basis of this court, he did not have the incident. Now, on defense, it was uh, a cross-examination was kind of interesting because the defense brought up some part in the video that the defense claims he heard, meaning he, the defense attorney, heard Mr. Floyd say he ate too many drugs, and Mr. Uh, Officer Steiger said no, he didn't hear anything of that sort. So those are just things that the defense is just trying to throw out bits and pieces to unravel at least one juror on their side. Yeah, I totally get it. One of the things that, you know, I, I was only able this morning to dip into little bits and pieces of the trial because we were doing show prep, but the one thing that I heard that really pinged me is that the handcuffs the police officers use when you struggle they get tighter it's called ratcheting and so if this is true then those handcuffs would have been biting into george floyd's wrist more and more tightly it is not pleasant it can be very painful to be handcuffed would it be reasonable to argue that george floyd was being tortured before he was murdered or as he was being murdered well, I think that's what we all saw is a man being tortured. But what is the legal standard is whether or not the police use unreasonable or excessive force. And in this mm-hmm. case, yes, the handcuffs would be a part of that. But the handcuffs are not a part of what they have to prove because they have to prove. Remember, the other part is causation, that what their children did cause Mr. Floyd's death. So the handcuffs are really got kind of legally like a non-issue. That may be an emotional mm-hmm. issue, but that's a non-issue because tightening of handcuffs would not have caused his death. And if that's all it was, it would have still have been unreasonable force, but we would not be having a murder trial. Right. But, but apparently they, they can configure the handcuffs, I guess it's called double locked, so that they yeah. won't automatically tighten when the person struggles. And they did not do that in this case. Do you know if doing that or not doing that, I realize it's not specific to the to the outcome of the trial, but I'm just horrified by this. Uh, Is doing that or not doing that any kind of standard police practice? That I don't know, because most of the cases that get to a level of liability, they're on excessive police force, and they would rise to a much higher level. I mean, unless the person's arm was some way injured or broken or there was some injury there to the arm or the wrist, so to speak, there wouldn't be any reason for showing that it was unreasonable or excessive force. But it's kind of like, you know, I hate to say it, no harm, no foul, so to speak. Right. No, I, I totally get it. And, you know, cops routinely put people in handcuffs. And, and to a large extent, that's necessary, <laughs> in our, sadly, in our society. I'm curious, your personal opinion, Debbie Hines, do you think that there is going to be, that, that this trial is going to uh, help or hurt the move to reform policing in the United States? Oh, it's definitely going to help the move. I mean, because regardless of what happens, we know that this is not over. Even if there is a murder conviction, we know that this is not over. And it just speaks volumes for all the other individuals, victims of police violence for which there was never, never a conviction. So I don't think it matters which way it comes out. I mean, I think the movement that was started around the world by everyone looking at George Floyd, that movement is not going to go away whether or not a verdict of guilt is rendered against Derek Chauvin or a verdict of not guilty or a mistrial. I think the movement is here to stay, and very well it should be. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I think we cannot discount the importance of performance, you know, of performing on media, of of educating the public through... um, I don't want to call this entertainment because it's very serious stuff. But, you know, through seeing, you know, shocking processes, in this case, you know, the, the trial and, the, and this guy defending himself saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I could do that. That was fine. I think it's going to really, I hope, 
I hope and pray that it's really going to help the movement to reform policing in this country and around the world. I think it will. Yeah. Debbie, great talking with you again. Thanks so much for dropping by. Debbie Hines. Here, Tom. Great, great talking with you. IamDebbieHines.com is her website, and you can tweet her at the uh, same at IamDebbieHines. President Joe Biden making a pitch for, number one, his jobs act, his infrastructure and jobs bill, and number two, H.R. 1, to show that our democracy really works. And I just love the fact that he's really hammering this point, that there are forces around the world and within the United States who literally do not believe in democracy, who do not want democracy in the United States, who want the United States to turn into an autocratic strongman dictatorship. And you could argue 70 million Americans who took that position in the last election, because that's what Donald Trump was selling. And that's what the Republican Party continues to sell. And so President Biden is out saying, no, we can demonstrate to ourselves and to the world that democracy actually is a good thing, that democracy actually works. This experiment does not have to end. We can continue with this. So anyway, picking up your phone calls here, Tim in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Well, uh, every time you go uh, on to reading something, I always get these different ideas. So this isn't what I called about, but a couple of thoughts here. One, uh, you know, regulation is always the result of abuse. There's no other way around it. I mean, one doesn't precede the other. Here's an offer I would make conservatives. If they're so amazingly confident about their policies and, and the way, the direction that they want the community at large to go, I would trade them. You get rid of the Electoral College, I'll get rid of presidential term limits. How about that? Hmm. But the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was in this infrastructure bill, I hope and I pray that there is a significant amount of money allocated to libraries, local newspapers. I mean, if you think about infrastructure, I think we all want not only a healthy citizen body, but a literate citizen body. And, you know, even if if in the last 15 years, and I've been a a substitute teacher and been an artist for most of my life, you know, how are we so willing to get rid of libraries and books and everything for the trading them for iPads and and things like this? I think that the dumbing down of our society has been partly a cause of technology, but also somewhat, it almost seems somewhat uh, planned out. If we were to pass... Mm -hmm a tax, let's say a tax, on Google and Facebook and all these uh, big tech corporations that say you've got to grant back some of your money to local newspapers, free. You've got to supplement them, media, local mm. newspaper, rural media outlets, so that people like uh, you and, and, you know, I remember the days where you could get a free newspaper at any Waffle House or you could, you could walk up and there was always something to read that was engaging. And you didn't have mm. the one bad thing about social media is that every time you look, you're getting inundated with so many ads. You know, the average newspaper, if you look at the 1800s and the early 1900s, you know, all the, all the ads were in the very back. They were in one part in the very back, Reader's Digest. But, you know, and right. then later, uh, newspapers got, got gist of the idea that, well, you know, we'll, we'll do the headline stuff, and then we'll, we'll uh, uh, you know, continue the columns towards the end of the paper. So you got to flip through the pages, but... When you go online, and if there's an interesting article that you want to read, one, you've either got to subscribe and pay $179 a year to finish reading it from some newspaper outlet. And I feel bad for them because I love our newspapers. Yeah. But, or, or you've got to go through 47 pages of junk just to get the gist of the article. There's got to be yeah, some sort there, of re- way to regulate the amount of advertising and how it's done. And it's, it's so deceptive. It's so deceptive. You know, who has kind of started this conversation is Australia. And, you know, in this uh, debate with regard to the local newspapers and, and Google and all that kind of stuff. And I think that a, a whole new conversation has just begun on these topics. The next book I'm writing is going to be called The Hidden History of Big Brother. And, you know, I'm digging into social media and all these other things. And it's a, a, a fascinating topic to, to get into. But the death and destruction of newspapers all around the world by these uh, social media companies, or for that matter, by Google, you know, by search engines, there has to be a balance there somewhere. So, Tim, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. I got to run. But yep. thank you very much for the call. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? All right, listen, I had uh, tangentially related a comment on uh, the Chauvin murder trial 
everyone knows the famous three words from George Floyd, I can't breathe. But And the media latches on to what it wants to. But I want to remind everyone that he said something else. He said another three words. And he kept saying, don't kill me. And that in and of itself, and I hope the prosecution brings this in, because people that are begging for their lives saying, don't kill me, are probably not resisting. What say you? No, absolutely. And did he say that just once or did he say that on multiple occasions? Do you know? He said it several times. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just the inhumanity of this Kenyatta is just breathtaking. And the fact that we're on, what, day seven or eight of a trial for a guy who was caught on videotape committing murder, I just find breathtaking, too. You were a former police officer, as I recall. Yeah, I actually worked the body coverage unit for Gavin DeBecker, yeah. Yeah, so are you seeing change, do you think? You know, I watched some old footage of the Rodney King beating last night, and if you had asked me that question before seeing that footage, I would have probably said gradual, but no. Yeah, okay. We got a big job. We got a big job ahead of us, Kenyatta. Thanks a lot for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. It's always great to hear from you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls. What's on your mind today? Right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I did want to uh, point out that we're on the verge of a disaster down in Florida. 300, I believe it's families or homes have been evacuated as hundreds of millions of gallons of wastewater from a defunct phosphate mine are threatening the town, which raises the question, why do we allow companies to engage in mining operations that produce enormous amounts of waste and not require them to set aside money during the time that they're making the money off the operation that will be used to clean it up. You've got old coal mines all over West Virginia and Pennsylvania that are just, you know, disasters. Well, and not just those states, but all over the country that are just disasters waiting to happen. You've got fracking operations. You've got drilling operations. We have mining operations literally all over the country. Uranium, particularly out in Indian country, out, out west, uranium mining where the tailings are still there. They're still radioactive years later. And what do these companies do? Well, we saw it with the coal companies in West Virginia. They make all the profit, they extract all the cash they can, and then they declare bankruptcy after they've paid their CEOs and their stockholders massive amounts of money. And uh, then they declare bankruptcy and say, uh, okay, uh, West Virginia, you get to pay for it. Or in this case, okay, Florida, you get to pay for it. Now, in the case of Florida, in this particular case, it looks like part of this was also the state of Florida itself. Maybe. I've been trying to dig out the details on this. There was a dredging operation nearby, and a lot of the waste from that dredging operation went into this kind of basically toxic waste dump. 
and made the situation much, much worse. I don't know if it's a private company that was doing the dredging or if it was the state or both or who made that decision, but that's the stuff that is always missing from the coverage. I read the piece in the New York Times today. I read the piece in the Washington Post today. I read the piece in the Financial Times. None of them are talking about who left the taxpayers with the bag, holding the bag. And how did they get away with it? Why isn't there more conversation about this kind of stuff? I don't get it. Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls. Heidi in uh, Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Heidi, what's on your mind today? Tom, I was watching your competition on um, TV this morning, and somebody made a really good point. They were talking about the vaccine passport and how it's mostly Republican men who are refusing to get the vaccine. So here we're going against, you know, their liberty against my rights and my right to be healthy and part of the community. Because since they refuse to take the vaccine and because, you know, they're controlling our my life again, especially as a woman in my health, I'm not safe. I won't feel safe to go out into a crowd. And so here it is, this minority of white men running my life, making my health decisions again. I mean, I have had a, um, an abortion. I, I had to have an abortion. But, yeah, I think that was a really good point, that here they are running our lives again, and particularly women's bodies again and our health and our bodies. And this is not pro-life. Yeah, I get it, Heidi. I totally get it. And white evangelical men and Republican men are at the top of the pile of people who are saying, nope. Not going to get a vaccine, and uh, they want to mingle with us. I wrote an article about this, and we talked about this on the air a couple of days ago. It's uh, over at HartmanReport.com that actually has links to the story of George Washington requiring, they called it variolation back in the day, but it's basically vaccination for smallpox. He required that for the Continental Army in 1776, uh, toward the end of the year, uh, you know, after the declaration, after we had actually declared war on, on Great Britain. And, you know, I used to have a vaccine passport and in my regular passport. It's a yellow card you get. Uh, you have to go to a particular type of doctor and you have to have these things to go into. I had to have that to go into Uganda, Kenya and Somalia back in the 80s and or back in the late 70s, in fact. And so this is not a crazy idea. This is this has been around for a long, long time. Sharon in Minneapolis. Hey, Sharon, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was wondering if they may look into the possibility that uh, Noah Green, you know, they mentioned that he's a college student and he was a football player. And I was wondering if TBI may have played a part in his mental illness. I don't know the story of this person. I'm sorry, Sharon. The guy that uh, ran into the barricades? Oh, oh, yeah. The guy who killed the the police officer in Washington, D.C. Right. last week. So your speculation was that he might have had what? Traumatic brain injury? Uh, traumatic brain injury from playing football. As a consequence of what? College football. Oh, oh, yeah. I, it, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I remember hearing that he was a football player on the news and I hadn't put two and two together. Yeah. I mean, he was clearly not rational, right? I mean, if you're no, if you're trying to attack the Capitol building in a little car with a knife, you know, I mean, a trying to attack the Capitol building in and of itself is not rational. But b, if you're going to do it and you think you're going to have any success in a little car with a knife, you're really delusional. And uh, you know, there's there is some speculation that what he was trying to do is commit suicide by cop. And, yep. and traumatic brain injury would provide a good explanation for that. That's that's an interesting question. Yeah, uh, Sharon, thank you. Thank you for that. I, You know, I, it hadn't occurred to me. It's brilliant. Jack in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Jack, what's up? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to call and, man, commend you on your being, you wearing a mask in my business or you taking a vaccine to come to my business. I just want to back you up. I know you had a lot of callers call in and was, like, trying to make you this trying to be a government man to make everybody take a vaccine, but you had a perfect point. If you want my bill or you want to come buy my bread, wear a mask or take a vaccine to come in my shop. And I have Yeah, it's all American. We've got this slogan, no shoes, no shirt, no service. I mean, you know, just add no vaccine to that, right? 
That's it, you know. And I, I, I just want to back you up. I seen you get about a fifty callers in last week. Steady saying Tom Hartman want to take my rights. Uh, Tom Hartman saying what I'm saying. Jack saying in Phoenix, you want to come in my place? <laughs> if you want to infect my kids or my my customers, look, I don't need the money that bad. Yeah, and I appreciate you, Jack. Tom. Do you mind my asking what your business is? Oh, we're in the recycling business out here in Phoenix. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's yeah. important stuff. And I'm and, up here working uh, actually now, but I keep you in here, Bugs, all day. But this is something like I was listening all week between you and the trial, and you kept getting callers in that kept saying, like, Tom Harmon, you want to, how you going to make me? You didn't say make them take nothing. You said no, if you want to come visit the Tom Hartman show, have a mask on, have your vaccine. You didn't say yeah. whatever, the, whatever yeah. they want to do at home, you know. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I, you can't you can't just go door to door with a gun and say you will take the vaccine. But but you can, you know, every business in America and I think airlines probably are going to be and cruise lines are going to be at the front of this line. I right, can say, no, ain't going to happen. But now Ron Santos issued an executive order down in Florida forbidding companies from requiring a vaccine in order to, for example, get on board a cruise ship. He's I, this guy's just shooting himself in the foot. Jack, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be right back. We're reading today from Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. This is in chapter one. Do you think there might be something just a little off in America, psychologically speaking? Of course, there's something wrong. We all know it. And in many quarters, our national behavior hovers on the brink of a very different, even deranged society that many fear is leading to fascism. Many of us play a game of ain't it awful about Donald Trump, and we talk in the latest psychological jargon about how odd and dangerous he is. But that's not really the issue in America, is it? Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the rest of us were unable to defeat him, the seemingly most incompetent person ever to run for president, and certainly the most bizarre. The real issue in America is what's wrong with our own minds, the 300 million of us who swim in the American pond that has not just led to Donald Trump and his obvious bizarreness, but to this massive breakdown in our psychological stability as a nation that we all feel in the deepest parts of ourselves. A decade ago, I wrote a book, State of Confusion, that addressed this problem and described an ominous series of psychological assaults to the stability of the American mind. In that work, I sounded an alarm over the then-emerging erratic psychological behaviors that have led to what we are now witnessing full-blown in America, the destabilization of the American mind. The election of Donald Trump was but a symptom. Harvard University law professor Lawrence Tribe summarized State of Confusion as a vitally important investigation of how a cadre of ethically challenged political operatives and their religious and journalistic allies have gradually distorted and disabled the minds of ordinary Americans and have all but crippled the once extraordinary mind of America. Tribe added, it is not too late for us to reclaim our identity, but we will succeed only if we take to heart the lesson so lucidly laid bare by the remarkable work of this insightful psychologist and experienced political activist. End of quote. We did not heed Professor Tribe's advice, nor have we appreciated the issues I raised in State of Confusion. Instead, the destructive process has continued unabated and unrecognized, and the techniques used to manipulate the already vulnerable American mind have grown more powerful. The psychological processes and dynamics I described back then are very much the ones that are operative today. They are merely worse. We have now seen shocking states of psychological denial that our planet is hemorrhaging. Each new season spews forth spectacular new forms of environmental earthly protests, of how the planet has been abused, its miraculous natural rhythms so powerfully, rapaciously disrespected. Unprecedented storms, fires, hurricanes, and our newest bomb cyclones give voice to Mother Earth's dismay. And yet millions of Americans, despite this evidence, go deeper into psychological denial. We dismantle our already inadequate environmental regulations created to safeguard the planet, hopefully before it becomes uninhabitable. Is something psychologically wrong here? We have successfully taken the excess out of our First Amendment right to free speech 
by arguing free speech does not give one the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. But at the same time, when our Second Amendment says we cannot abridge our state's rights to have a militia, we are in some robotic logic required to give every angry person full access to weapons needed to quickly snuff out the life of everyone in that theater or school or concert or nightclub. Any angry person in America, be they terrorist, super patriot, or just someone who'd like to end their unhappy life with a glorious bang, is allowed to commit their own grand form of suicide with semi-automatic weapons that can literally kill another human being every second. Our taxed and now terribly compromised form of mental reasoning has led us to this paralysis in our problem-solving ability. We understandably blame the NRA, but how do we explain their minds? And how do we explain our inability to defeat their minority effort when we look in the faces of the grieving parents of Sandy Hook or Stoneman Douglas victims? Remarkably today, when our most precious surviving youth stand up bravely in protest, they are referred to as Nazis. We can understand these American minds and we can change them, but only if we will put the American mind itself front and center in our awareness and study of it. It's not just our environment that is deteriorating from the stresses we put on it. It is also our minds. In reissuing this supplemented version of State of Confusion, I'll show why the inherently vulnerable, increasingly traumatized, and badly manipulated American mind has reached a point that now threatens America's democracy, maybe even our survival. Focusing on Donald Trump's obvious impairments is a dangerous distraction that keeps us from attending to this real problem. Fortunately, I believe we do have the knowledge and resources to combat the true threat and reclaim the American mind with its glorious commitment to the freedom of the human spirit. But we must confront the reality of our situation now. We don't have another 10 years. I am a clinical psychologist and attorney and have had an unusual opportunity to understand current American political behavior, not only from work with patients, but also in my time spent in Washington, D.C. as a national spokesperson for psychology and mental health. My life passion has been the human mind as it shapes how we feel in the interior of our own personal private space, how it creates the way we experience our most intimate relationships, and how it influences the way we conduct our public affairs. State of Confusion by Bryant Welch. Welcome back. Hey, Holly. What's up? Hi. Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois has gotten rid of cash bail. Mm -hmm. And he's also talking about reparations. And he also started a program to open up more cannabis stores. It's legal in Illinois. He opened up more cannabis stores, but giving a leg up on the communities that were most affected by people being put in prison for cannabis. That's great. That is great. He's a very progressive governor who you should have on. He's a mega millionaire. I think one of the richest people in Illinois, yet he puts yeah, his money to use. As soon as, yeah. yeah, as soon as COVID came out, he donated a million dollars to a fund to help, you know. To yeah, help that's marvelous. <laughs> I have heard good things about Governor Pritzker, and, and thank you for affirming that. And, and uh, Holly, I really appreciate it. And I mean, it's just we need to wake up from this insanity that we have bought into over the years. It's just amazing. George in Chicago. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. A couple of days ago when I was watching the testimony of the Minneapolis Fire Department EMT, when she testified about what transpired when she tried to offer medical aid for Mr. Floyd, it struck me that as a sworn member of the fire department and as a certified EMT, it's her legal obligation to treat people who need medical care. And I'm guessing that under the laws of most states, if you interfere with an EMT or a paramedic in delivering needed medical care to someone who is in distress, that that in itself is a crime. And uh, hmm. But it just strikes me that all four of those officers should have been, or maybe they can be in the future, charged with interfering with a, a paramedic or EMT in pursuing yeah. her duties. Fascinating. It's sort of like state and federal government, you know, who has priority? Because the cops would say, no, we prevented her from doing that because we felt there was a threat to public safety. And presumably the police have a higher 
threshold of what they can be held accountable for <laughs> in theory and also a higher level of uh, the ability to stop other people around them like you know like fire department and EMT but but I don't know that to be the case generally and I don't know that to be the case in Minneapolis so you raise a really interesting question thank you thank you very much George uh, Greg in Puyallup Washington hey Greg what's up uh, hi Tom it's pronounced Puyallup the reason I'm calling Puyallup. is about the Supreme Court and I how it's stacked Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster right after Trump was inaugurated there in April of 2017. And Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Comey Barrett should all have asterisks by their name. And now they're, you know, if we're just covering the filibuster. But now they're, the Republican states are trying to, on the, getting rid of the voting rights and stuff to just make it even harder for yeah. Democrats to get in and therefore keep control of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and they're trying, and by the way, that was the justification for Republicans going along with Reagan, cutting a secret deal with the Iranians, and trying to cover it up. That was the, you know, the Supreme Court's at stake. This was the justification for the Supreme Court stealing the election in 2000 for George W. Bush. Oh, you know, the Supreme Court's at stake. It's the future of Roe v. Wade. There's, un, you know, unborn children we've got to worry about. And of course, Brown v. Board, which they don't talk about. But, you know, it's always on their agenda. Greg, thank you. So one last thing that I'll take this last minute for, and that is that the Republicans in North Carolina did a, this has got no coverage anywhere. The Republicans in North Carolina did an investigation into voter fraud. You know, what happened in the last election? Actually, it ran longer than that. It ran for, for a four, it was a four-year investigation. And it was done by federal and prosecutors who were appointed by Donald Trump. And they just came out with the results after the subpoenas in 44 counties, multiple state agencies, sophisticated data mining, invasive audits of state voter rolls, hundreds of hours of professional staff time. They found no evidence of voter fraud. They found 44 people. It was all human error. Every single case, 41 people, excuse me, out of 7 million votes cast. You're more likely to get hit by lightning than to encounter voter fraud. It's just that simple. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. And, you know, be good to yourself and the people around you. It's, we're, we're coming into the light and into the summer, too. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 